Welcome back to the flip side. Galen Clavio here, along with Brian Moritz. Pleasure to be back. Uh, Brian and I have were supposed to be together this weekend if, if the scheduling had worked out, but uh, no, uh, we didn't get a chance to do that. But uh, we're here virtually and chatting about things, and we're happy to mm-hmm. be joining you. And Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, happy spring break to you and the rest of you at uh, University of Indiana, and uh, congratulations on your five seed in the tournament. Um, Not, we'll probably get to that. We'll probably get to that in, in one of our segments here. Um, yes. but, um, but yeah, we were, um, Galen and I had a paper together, some research we're working on at the International Association for Communication and Sport conference. Is it conference or summit? It's the summit, I think. Summit. Okay. Um, and we're going to be, that's part, another one of our topics we were thinking about kicking around talking about later on too. Um, and one of these days we will be in the same place and be able to do a flip side, uh, Periscope. A, live, a Periscope live in-person flip side yeah. at some point. Um, but the big news for us podcast-wise is we are officially now available on the iTunes store. Isn't that exciting? That is that is cool. It was very funny when I saw when it. was awesome when I saw it come up. And it's like like you submit it to iTunes yourself, and it shows up. So it's not like you were selected, but you, know, you, you submit it, and it comes through in like a day or so once you finally get everything right. But that is very cool to, to open up iTunes and see all the, all the, all the episodes that we've done in there and see our name in there. That is really cool. So uh, the feed, we've been sharing the feed on Twitter and on Facebook, and uh, you can subscribe there or through your whatever your podcast. Um, catcher. Uh, catcher, Podcatcher, yes, podcatcher of choices. Mine is Overcast. So if you use that or whichever one, you can easily get the feed in. And all previous eight episodes are up. This is number nine. We are very much about to ellipse, eclipse Cop Rock. Yes, I'm I'm excited about our eventual eclipsing of Cop Rock. We're about to outlast, um, well, gosh, I think we're almost past the John Adams miniseries now, too, oh, aren't we? Yeah, I, I, I would assume so, yeah. Um, I think that was like an 11-parter. So when we, when we surpass Rome, I'll know that we've made it. <laughs> the Empire or the TV series? Well, both, I would hope, but yeah. Sure. Um, but let's just start with the TV series and see what okay. we can do from there. Gotcha. So, all right, so as is tradition, what is your uh, microbrew of the night? Well, I'm sticking with Ballast Point, but I, I went with the Sculpin tonight, uh, which yeah. is the, the IPA, which is really, really delightful. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I'll, I will say, well, let me get yours first, but I have a shout-out to another beer that I wanted to give after that. All right. I'm, I'm actually going with a cider this time. I'm not usually a cider guy, but I have Mackenzie's Black Cherry Heart mm. Cider, um, which is outstanding. It, it really does taste like black cherry soda. I uh, learned about it. We, uh, my wife and I worked at the Finger Lakes Wine and Craft Beer Festival that we have in Canadagua out, um, every summer. And we pour in the beer tent and we were pouring Mackenzie's Hearts. And my wife was at the Mackenzie's tent and outstanding. So not very cidery, very, very black cherry. So, so what's your recommendation? Uh, two recommendations. I was at, since we were in Grand Rapids, which has a significant number of breweries. Right. Um, uh, there was a brewery that we went to that I wasn't that excited about going to called the Bob's Brewery, B O B with the dots, like a, like B dot O dot B. Okay. Uh, had two very very good beers there. One of them was a, was called Black Zeppelin. Uh, it was a, a black IPA and okay. it was quite tasty. But the one that surprised everybody was the Peanut Butter Porter. Ooh, and okay. it, it was really legitimately good. I don't know if I would drink several of them in, in succession, but right. it did an excellent job of integrating a peanut butter taste into a porter without it being overwhelming or or like overly sweet or overly nutty or anything like that. 
I feel like those types of beers are really what the make your own six pack are made for because right. like I would love to try a peanut butter porter. It sounds really good, but I don't want six of them in my fridge. I'm not going to sit I'm not going to go through six of them, but one at a time, you know, trying it out. Absolutely. It does yeah. sound excellent. So, yeah. so I'll a shout out and shout out to that it was a neat brewery. They were having a chili eating competition when I went, uh, okay. I didn't, I didn't sample the chili, but I wish I had because they had like 45 or 50 different types of chili going on there. Oh my goodness! It Excellent. Was, it was it was pretty eye opening. So so do you have, do you have a chili specialty? I know you're a cooker. You're, mm-hmm. you're pretty good in the kitchen. So what's your you know your like one minute chili specialty? Well, you know I I I'm a firm believer in meat mixing, and so you oh, know when I do like a lot of people they'll just do a beef chili. Mm-hmm. I'll generally do a beef and pork chili. And, and I always use a hot Italian sausage that you cook ahead of time, uh, to throw in with the regular beef. And I think that that really gives, uh, chili an additional kick to it that it wouldn't have otherwise. But it's not like a, an overwhelmingly spicy kick, like sometimes you'll get with the over peppered, um, right. sauces that, that exist in chili. So that's generally what I'll do. I like, I like to use a nice mixture of, of, uh, bell peppers. Uh, you know, generally we'll use a mixture of green and red and maybe one mm-hmm. other type because you get a nice mixture of flavors that go in with that. So that, that yeah. would be, I, I don't make a lot of chili, but when I do, that's generally what I do. Yeah, I, I usually go with, uh, I, I usually go with venison. We get venison from my father-in-law, right. uh, who's a hunter. So we get, I usually go straight, I usually like doing a venison and black bean. Yeah. That's so, good. It's pretty simple, but you know, I did a I did a venison and buffalo chili one time that was Ooh. pretty good, but that was pretty extravagant. Yeah. Like that, that was like okay, we just spent a lot of money on <laughs> meat to put in chili. It's like right. maybe maybe we don't have the right priorities in life, <laughs> or you have exactly the right priorities that, that, in life. Also fair. Yes. So anyway, um, we we had a couple of things to talk about. I feel like we have to to tackle the stuff around Selection Sunday, both mm-hmm. the draw and the show that was related <laughs> to the draw. I'll let you choose which one we want to tackle first. All right, let, let, let's tackle the, the, the draw from both of our perspectives as well. Um, okay. Because you have a seating issue, I have a snub issue. Um, and you can help me out here. Because obviously, as a St. Bonaventure alum, very disappointed, upset, not just... I, 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 I've been thinking about it a lot over the past two days, obviously. And um, then St. Bonaventure not making the tournament, very disappointing. Um, but I but I will concede that I can kind of see, uh, understand the non-Bonaventure case, especially in light of losing the, the A-10 quarterfinal game to Dayton, not getting in the semifinals. To me, that was the classic example of, you can't, especially when you're a small school like Bonaventure, you cannot give the committee any reason to overlook you or look to somebody else because they will. So they had a three-point lead with 21 seconds to go, fouled a three-point shooter, bad loss. You know, I don't know if they win that game, if they get in or not, but that didn't help. The angering, the, the thing that, that still kind of anger, uh, roils up the blood for me a little bit is not that, not just Bonaventure not getting in, it's that Tulsa got in over Bonaventure. Um, because, and that is according to Castiglione, the NCAA selection chair, he told Andy Katz, Bonaventure was the last team out. Tulsa was the last team in. So that's a direct comparison, Tulsa versus St. Bonaventure. And, you know, the, the only, the, you can help me out because you were doing brackets and you pretty consistently did not have Bonaventure in there. I gave you a lot of grief for it, but you know, 
So you, you look at Tulsa, and the only thing I can think of, and you can help me out, and they help me understand the kind of rational case here. I'm never going to accept that Bonaventure shouldn't be in the field, but I'm a fan, and it's my emotion. You know, that's an emotional thing, and I'm okay with that. But so the, the the rationale I see for Tulsa is they had a better Ken Palm. They were like 20 spots higher in the Ken Palm, like 58 to 78, and they had one more top 100 win. They had four top 100 wins to Bonaventure's three. And I know that's a huge flaw in Bonaventure's resume. They did not have a great out of co- they did not have any real standout out of conference wins. They had eight in Ohio, I think, was their best one. Um, and the selection chair also pointed out that they lost at Syracuse, which to me is insane that all of a sudden Bonaventure has to win at Syracuse to get an at large bid. Right. Um, that gets to larger selection issues. So you can help me understand the rational case. I think I understand the rational case against Bonaventure, but sell me on Tulsa getting in over Bonaventure. I will not sell you on Tulsa being in the field. That, that to me, I mean, you want to talk about, I mean, look, yes, St. Bonaventure losing to Davidson was a terrible, terrible idea. Tulsa got destroyed by Memphis, who isn't much better than St. Bonaventure in the first game of the American tournament, and they had just lost to them uh, 10 days earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. By 10. I mean, you know, the idea that that was the dividing line is silly. Now, I will say St. Bonaventure played a bad out-of-conference schedule. Like, it was, it, was, it was on IU's level of bad out-of-conference schedules, which is saying something at, at this point. But, uh, but Tul- you know, and Tulsa played a better one. I mean, it, was, it, yes. wasn't, it wasn't leaps and bounds better. But it was better. But there were, there were other teams that could have made it in ahead of St. Bonaventure. I, I think Bonaventure, ultimately, their biggest issue was that all of their good wins came inside the conference. And that's just a, that's always been a bad recipe for getting into any sort of a tournament. Uh, and you can get away with it to some degree as long as you don't have any bad losses. In your conference, and the loss the LaSalle. The, LaSalle, the LaSalle loss and the Duquesne loss, those two basically meant that it, it undid any of the good that you'd got with the wins versus St. Joe's or the win at Dayton. And right. that's just an unfortunate occurrence. I'll be honest, I was surprised they had Bonaventure as high as they did in terms of having them as listed as the first team out, given that. Right. I, I think there's a larger point here, though, Brian, and this is something that comes from my having done brackets for 20 plus years, uh, you know, having really studied the way that the brackets have been done by the committee really since about 2000, 2001. And this is something that, you know, fans like you who are fans of teams that don't normally make it into the field generally don't notice until you're not in the field. Right. The, 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 the criteria that are used for teams to get into the field are supposedly pretty straightforward. You know, it's like, okay, you need to have high power ratings and you need to have a good non-conference schedule and you need to have wins away from home. Uh, you need to do well in your conference. The problem is that the way that those variables are applied is very arbitrary and it changes seemingly every year. And it's not just in terms of of selection, but it's also in terms of seeding, as you alluded to earlier on. Um, and it, it's a real, it's a real concern to me. You know, one of the things that is important to keep in mind is that a lot of people do bracketology. You know, I mean, bracket matrix has really kind of hit the mainstream the last couple of years. Bracket matrix, for those of you who aren't aware, is it's a it's a guy 
who I interviewed one time. I, I have just a tremendous respect for this man. He he actually goes around and collects all of the brackets online that people do, aggregates them, and then at the end of the whole thing, he scores them based upon this scoring system, based upon what the committee does. Mm-hmm. And you know what you find is that there's tremendous variance every year from what these bracketologists do to what the committee does. And there's all kinds of like computer algorithms based upon what the criteria should be, what's stated, what the criteria is by the selection committee uh, in their manual. And you see, you know, variance year to year. And rarely is the same person the top bracket picker year to year. And that should tell us a lot. Uh, you know, what it tells us is that this is very much a subjective system. It's not an objective system. It's not a system where you know going in what you need to do in order to get a good seed or get into the field in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, it does change from season to season. John Calipari, uh, who was kind of, you know, in a rage after his team won the SEC tournament title and was given a four seed, and Texas A&M, who lost the SEC tournament title, was given a three seed, went off for quite a bit about this, about how the criteria are just not consistent from year to year. Uh, and, and I think he's got a valid point. I don't happen to think he has a valid point with his team this year. I actually think Kentucky was seeded pretty much where they were supposed to be seeded, considering they only beat like two or three three teams, I think, that were in the tournament. But the larger point remains that there's always been a tremendous amount of of variance in the things that the committee decided that they were going to uh, like favor or uh, or not favor, and I think that's a problem. I think that for coaches, for administrators, for bracketologists, bracketologists, we are not important people in the big scheme of things. But just you know, bear with me here. When you're when you're when there's a supposedly you know, straightforward system with straightforward variables, and yet the people involved in it decide that they're going to change their emphasis consistently. I don't think that that serves anybody particularly well, and it makes you wonder. It, it adds it adds conspiracy to the process because it's like, well, why aren't you applying these things consistently from year right. to year? Right, and some of you know, you know, the conspiracy theorists among my Bonaventure alumni friends is that the Tulsa alum got his first job from the Oklahoma AD who's on the, on the selection committee. Now I don't buy, I, I don't buy into a lot of that. Um, go ahead. Go ahead, caller. I, thanks. I, it, you, <laughs> we, we do this on video and I was holding my finger up. Uh, here's why I wouldn't write that out completely out of hand. There was a trend going in the mid two thousands where it was patently obvious that even though the committee claims that, um, you know, they have to leave the room when their team's being discussed or things like that, like there were random things that would happen that would make no sense other than the fact that a committee member happened to be on the committee and they had a tie to a particular team. So like the, the, the most famous examples of this, and I'll probably get the years wrong, but there was one year that Virginia was a five seed. And, uh, you know, they, they hadn't really earned a five seed. Like the fact that they were that seed was way out of whack, except that the chairman of the committee was Craig Littlepage, right. uh, who was, was at the time the athletic director at UVA. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another year when, uh, Gerald Myers, who was the athletic director at Texas Tech, was on the committee. And, Texas Tech ended up getting seated above where you would have expected them to be seated based upon their record because 
it, well, maybe not because, but it just coincidentally, Myers was on the committee. There was another one where Bob Bowlesby, who was the athletic director at Iowa, was on the committee, and Iowa got into the field. I think this was 2005. Iowa got into the field um, as a 10 seed, um, d- despite really not having the resume required uh, to have that sort of a of a seating spot. And so th- these are the sorts of things that have happened over the course of time where it makes you scratch your head and say, all right, are there shenanigans going on? So while it seems overly conspiratorial that the Oklahoma AD got Tulsa into the field as a favor to his buddy, I I wouldn't it's, write it. I wouldn't write oh, it off out of hand. I, I I don't I don't write it off out of hand. I don't you know I I, I don't, don't necessarily support it, but I don't write it off out of hand. That's kind of where I am too. I don't like I, you know I don't think it was like that necessary quid pro quo, but I you know I don't believe I don't also you know think that it's completely out of the realm of possibility. Um, the frustrating thing for me watching this, and again, this is something as a school that doesn't often get to this point that Bonaventures been to the NCAA tournament three times, uh, twice, should be three times, but twice in the last 15 years. One, they won the A-10, then they earned an at-large bid in 2000. In 2000. Yeah. Um, so we, so this is not anything where it's not like Indiana, where we're, where we're around Selection Sunday a lot. That's why it hurts so much to not get in. We Schools like us don't get to this point very often, and to kind of get, and to get snubbed in that way, that's why it made it a little bit more painful. Um, I think, you know, one of the frustrating things for me watching this, and I went on a, tr- a Twitter rant, and you hit on on, the, on this in what you were just saying, is that, you know, it, it, it seems from the outside, and again, you have more, you're, you do bracketology around this more, but it, 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 it has the feeling of the committee making a decision and then finding the analytics to back up the decision rather than using the analytics to base the decision. Um, all of a sudden, top, you know, you look at top 50 wins, you know, all of a sudden that's the most important thing when, when picking a field versus, let's say, RPI or strength of schedule or finishing strong or, you know, conference finish or, you know, however, you know, the, the, Part of the problem that the committee does face is, of course, there are so many different variables and so many different metrics and so many, you know, comparing at, and comparing programs at, at, in different conferences is frustrating. The one thing that, that's driving me nuts is, is the RPI even, is there even a, a point to the RPI anymore? Now, I say this in a weird way because obviously Bonaventure 29 RPI going into Selection Sunday doesn't get in, you know, ridiculous. Syracuse with a 72. And I have, Less of a problem with Syracuse getting in than other people do, I think. Um, and it's I, not just because I went there. That, that, I, thought, they're, they're, I, I thought they belonged in, and I have no affiliation I, with them. I, 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 I don't necessarily think they belong, but they get in, and whatever, they're fine. You know, this is a Syracuse team that makes a run to the Final Four because it's just that's all happens with Syracuse. But, but like, so RPI doesn't matter except when we're looking at ranking the top fifty wins. It's just. The, the, there's that, like you were saying, that that lack of consistency from year to year, or even from team to team, in making the the, the decisions every year. That 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 was just very, that is just very frustrating. I think you know, especially you know when you're looking at it from the mid-major point of view. You know, um, you, your Monmouths, your Bonaventures, your Valpos. You know, the schools that you know have to kind of work their way into the conversation. You don't get that automatic you know, RPI schedule boost that you do get in the big 10 or the ACC, because you're going to play a lot of conference games and get more opportunities to get top 100 and top 50 wins just by numbers. You know, Tulsa got that because they're, com- you know, they had a little, the, the AAC, whatever that conference stands for has a little bit more, um, 
uh, like top, a little more, l- l- a few more teams in the top 50 than the A10. So you're able, so they're able to get more top 50 wins. Um, but it, it, it is, it's, it, it's, you know, so you're, you're trying to plan at your, you know, you're trying to say to mid majors, here's what you have to do. And then it, and then they do, they try to do it. And then you, you, you change the, the variable on them. You decide to go on, go by something else. You know, Monmouth is the classic example here. You know, they go on the road from non-conference. They have a killer non-conference schedule. You know, a lot of them are names, but you know, winning at Georgetown, winning at UCLA, those matter. All of a sudden those two schools have, have kind of crap for years. They fall out of the top 50 and top 100. Now all of a sudden that great schedule and everything Monmouth did, doesn't matter because those schools happen to have bad years. It's just, it, it, it's from the mid-major perspective, it's frustrating. And like Monmouth is one of those teams where like, if they had gotten that last bid over Bonaventure, I'd be disappointed and probably a little upset, but I can completely see Monmouth getting in and, you know, they're a great story and would root for them and they're, they're fun and they did what they're supposed to do. It was the combination of not getting in and the Tulsa getting in that does it. Um, now, in terms of seeding, and we can kind of get into the, our, our bracketology, our very quick bracketology talk here. We should have a flip side bracket, by the way. We really should. We, we should do that, uh, a, a bracket contest. So, so Indiana at a five seed, go. I actually didn't have a problem with it. I, thought that, <laughs> I, I know I was supposed to have some big controversial take on this, but look, I, look, I've been banging on Tom Crean for years that his his conference non conference schedule is inadequate, and it, it bit them in the ass this year. They they scheduled they had the road game at Duke that was part of the ACC Big Ten Challenge. That was right. not something that IU scheduled. They had the Maui where they got scheduled against Wake Forest with a potential second round matchup against Vanderbilt and then a potential third-round matchup against Kansas. But instead, they lost to a crap Wake Forest team. They ended up playing St. John's, who might have been the worst major conference team in basketball this year outside of Rutgers. And, <laughs> and, then, they, and then they played UNLV in the third game, and they lost that one. And so they had, they had three cracks at, at, uh, at at-large, or excuse me, at, at um, you know, neutral site victories, and they blew it. They did beat Notre Dame on a neutral floor, and the rest of their games were, frankly, against not very good teams. And the committee was not impressed, and the Big Ten was not looked upon as a particularly strong major conference this year, and and I tend to agree with that. The bottom of the Big Ten was probably the worst I've ever seen it. It It was that between Rutgers and Minnesota and Illinois it was a it was a tremendously bad bottom of the conference. Now, some people are like, well, you know, IU won the Big Ten by two games. Yeah, they did. And, you know, I don't necessarily – I mean, they, they played a weak conference schedule, but it wasn't overwhelmingly weak. But they left themselves no margin for error in their non-conference schedule. So a five seed, given the resumes of the teams that surrounded them, was pretty accurate. And so, you know, look – I'm, I try to be realistic about these things, and in that case, I look at it and I say to myself, well, you know, if you're in the 4-5 or five range, it doesn't really matter which line you're on. I mean, it's whether you're wearing the light jerseys or the dark jerseys, and frankly, they're better off now as a 5 seed in terms of being close to Bloomington than they would have been if they were the final 4 well, seed, because they would have right. been in Spokane, Washington instead. Well- and that's the other crazy thing about the NCAA, uh, the selection committee, is they will seed for travel. You know, Indiana might have been a four, but they seed at five so that they, they, they can be close. That's how I mentioned this last week. Bonaventure got, when they're at large, they were at 12 so that they could be in Cleveland close to, for better travel. So, um, so just, you know, the selection process is just so 
weird and crazy, but the show, talk about weird, crazy, and train wrecks. Yeah. That well, was that was a wonderful calamity. I, I did want to jump on one thing real quick before we sure. get to the show, and it's also a calamity, and it's called the RPI. Um, you, you mentioned <laughs> it earlier. I mean, look, the RPI is such a horrific statistical measure, and the fact that the NCAA Selection Committee is still utilizing RPI rankings um, for anything is is just a joke and look it's so so, so for 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 those of so those listeners who aren't analytics statistical people what's the i, I read andy glossner had a great piece about it yeah. in, on the college and outside this week so kind of break it down like why is it so bad the rpi is supposed to be a measure of your basically your strength of schedule based in part upon your opponent's uh, schedules. So 50% of it is your win loss. And that's, there's factors there for, you know, who you played and where you played. And so like a home win only counts for seven tenths of a win. A road win counts for 1.3 wins. Then 25% or no, excuse me, it's 25% you, 50% your opponent's records. And then, 25% your opponent's opponent's record. So what it's right. supposed to be basically is this metric that measures how strong the schedule was that you played based upon how strong the opponents that you played were. What it ends up, my wife, who's, a, who's a, an accountant by trade, just looked at me when I gave that explanation and said, what the hell? And that's, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's, that's basically the reaction that most of us have, because it's incredibly easy to game. In the, in the mid-2000s, the, the Missouri Valley Conference was like, you know what? We can actually we can we can figure out how to get around this system. And and they actually sat down and they talked with their teams and they're like, don't schedule teams that are likely to be in the sub two hundred range of the RPI. Instead, schedule teams that are going to be like above two hundred. You can still schedule like teams between one hundred and one and two hundred. But if you schedule those teams, you're still going to win. You're just going to be winning against a team that's significantly better, and that's going to help your RPI. And that is exactly what they did. And, and they were always in contention for multiple at-large bids for a while until, um, you know, for some reason they've gone away from that to some degree. But other conferences have really figured out how to do it. And, you know, it's funny because the Big Ten, one of the reasons it was viewed as a weak conference this year was that it had a bunch of teams who scheduled weak according to the RPI. Now, did that make them weak teams? We won't really know until the NCAA tournament hits. But what we can say is that it made them look weak according to the computer, the RPI computer, and that made the NCAA say, yeah, Michigan State, you may look like the best team in the nation, but we're going to give you a two-seed. Uh, you know, ludicrous, yeah. Right. So th- th- those are the sorts of things where you look at that and you're like, why are you using, like, this is like a, a sledgehammer metric. This is not the, the finely crafted precision tool that you would hope that a committee that's deciding on the selection and seeding for an event that is worth hundreds of millions of dollars would be utilizing. And, 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 you know, you look at far more sophisticated metrics, whether it's the Ken Palm ratings or the BPI or some of these other metrics that, that measure outcome based upon a variety of factors, including margin of victory, which their RPI does not look at, including, right. you know, like all, all these other things. And you're like, why is the NCAA still using this metric? And, and why are they so steadfast in not, like, changing it? And but, go ahead. No, but they're, they're they're using it except when they don't use it, and they don't use it except when they use it. And that's the point, is so that, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, ultimately, what you're dealing with is a really 
it's it can be very angering when you're on the wrong side of things. I, I do get that um, because when you look at at who got into the field this year, um, you know, it's like what was it? I think Temple got in. Yep. And you know they were 62nd in the RPI, and they were. Syracuse was 72, I believe. Syracuse was 72 in the RPI. You know, and that's not the worst one ever. But uh, it's close. And and, and the fact that, Frank, I I thought Temple was was as egregious of an entrant into the the field as as anybody. Because if you look at their Ken Palm numbers, Temple's like 85th in the nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really bad. And so I really struggle with that part of the process. And it's funny because, to me... Um, it's, it's important because I've been doing it long enough that we get this stuff right. It's not that hard to figure out who the best teams in basketball are. And yet there's just this obstinate, uh, effort on the part of the committee sometimes to act like, um, the metrics that they have at their disposal aren't as important as they should be. And I don't understand why there's actually a, a pretty cool idea that, um, you know, I think it was originally created by Andy Glockner and uh, one of the ESPN college basketball writers, where they were we would we should actually have a college basketball draft for selection positions rather hmm. than having a uh, you know just a, a, a committee deciding where teams are going to go in the bracket. And their idea is okay. If I'm Kansas or if I'm Kentucky or whatever, you know, am I, you know, where would I want to be in a bracket as opposed to other teams? And, huh. um, and so you would like have basically allow teams to, you know, have selection processes. You would allow some teams to jump out and jump back in again. Uh, but you, you'd have them selected on their own rather than having the committee just superimpose the bracket on people. Uh, you should go read about this. It's actually quite a fascinating thing. Yeah, and and the one thought I had, and then we can get to the show, is I, I I was wondering what it would be like for the NCAA basketball, and I know it would take away the drama of Selection Sunday, which CBS killed anyway, but I think it would be interesting if they kind of did a college football type thing where, like, you know, you know, like, like they, they unveil the rankings week by week down the stretch of the yeah. tournament so that it's not a – Bonaventure thinks it's in great. Everyone around the A10 and, and you know, Bonaventure thinks we're in good shape. We're probably getting in. There's a good chance we're getting it, getting in. To absolutely the last day, getting you Here's, know, get, getting kicked out, kicked out at the last second. You know, that would kill kind of the selection Sunday. But I wonder if there's a little more fairness in that. There'd be more. There'd be certainly be more fairness in it. But you have to understand something. This is something that everybody forgets. The NCAA men's basketball tournament is by far the most important thing that the NCAA has. The most it's important. Their bu- yeah, that's their budget. It is yeah. where 85% of their budget comes from. They, the NCAA doesn't make jack on the college football playoff. They, they never made jack on the Bulls. Like the, the NCAA has no control over college football except in enforcement. But in college basketball, that's where all their money comes from. And so they want to protect that process with their lives. And, and so the, the idea that they would ever switch to a, a system where they'd have to reveal what they were doing ahead of time, where they would, where they would give power at all to coaches or athletic directors or whatever in terms of where teams were seated or things like that. Um, I just, I kind of laugh and dismiss it out of hand because it's just, it's not going to happen unless the, unless it's forcibly taken away from the NCAA and the chances of that happening are basically nil. Oh, it's oh, it's a pipe dream. I know that. I, you know, I, I I completely understood that when I was thinking about it for a lot of reasons. But 
No, so, but it's but it's so, something it's something that you need to bring up. I agree with you. So it's not mm-hmm. it's not that it's a bad idea. It's it's that the NCAA is is simply not going to ever entertain it. Right. So so the show and the leak Oof. and and Oof. man, that was that was just all. So, I mean, we talked last week. I mean, as as I pointed out on Twitter, we you were we were and especially you were railing against CBS's college basketball coverage before it was cool to do so. But my goodness, they. Uh, <laughs> They, uh, so w- what was your, I, it's funny because I wasn't actually watching the show. I had, I had Twitter going, I was following, I was following on Twitter because my wife and my daughter were watching something on TV and like, you know, I'll, 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 like, I can follow this on Twitter just as easily. So I wasn't watching, you know, and all I saw was the excruciatingness of the, of the, of the feed and, you know, how people were complaining about it. And then all of a sudden the bracket comes out. And, you know, it's, you know, looking legit. And in my world, it was met with so much skepticism and fear and horror because obviously the brackets leaked and Bonaventure's not on there. So, you know, we and Syracuse is. So there was a whole lot of shock. There's a whole lot of what's going on. So what was your experience watching watching it and seeing the leak and kind of from your perspective? I, I had such a strange selection Sunday. So I was in Grand Rapids at mm-hmm. the conference. I was giving our presentation. Uh, and, uh, it got over at about 4.50. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was driving back with, uh, Matt Blaska, who is a professor over at Indiana State. And I was like, we gotta go. We gotta get in the truck. We gotta get back. I'm hoping we can find a radio station or something that will allow us to at least listen to the brackets. Otherwise, you're gonna have to give me the brackets as I'm driving via Twitter. Mm-hmm. And so, we got on the road and, he mentions, you know, they're actually streaming it on the NCAA March Madness app. And I'm like, hmm. So I set my phone up. I've got a, a Note 4. Okay. And I set my phone up on the console, like down in the, down on the bottom part of the console, and was actually able to stream the video from the selection show while I was driving. That's, um, that's just impressive and awesome. It was, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it, it lasted the whole way. Like I had no, no connectivity issues or anything. Wow. Which, nice. which just, it was, I mean, to some degree, I can't complain about the length of the show because it got me all the way from, <laughs> like, sent, like, 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 West Central Michigan into Indiana, which is where, you know, I was headed. Um, mm-hmm. but God, what a disaster the show was. I mean, it was, it was obvious to me that it was, you know, it was, it was an obvious cash grab. I mean, they just, they wanted a two hour show so they could sell two hours worth of ads. I get that. I really do. I was talking about this to a friend who also does bracketology, who was also appalled by the show. I was like, look, I can make an argument for a two-hour special for something as weighty as the NCAA tournament selection show. Like, I can, I can make the argument that here's – this is a almost a billion-dollar tournament, and it's, an, it's probably the most exciting three weeks in sports in terms of the games and in terms of the uncertainty and all the people that are involved in it. Um, what I can't make an argument for is a two-hour show where it's obvious that the people putting the show on have no ideas other than let's talk about shit. And right. and that's really that's what got me so upset. It's like they came out and I knew they were going to drag things out a little bit. They and then they revealed the one seeds at like five forty-two. And I was like, okay, well, they, you know, that's fine. It took them a little longer to get to that point. And then they revealed the first bracket, the South bracket, I think it was. And I'm like, okay, yeah. this is fine. And then they did a bunch of analysis, and they went to an ad break, and it was 6 o'clock. The show had lasted in, uh, like 30 minutes by that point. And I was right. like, okay, surely they're not going to take 30 minutes to reveal the next bracket. 
And sure enough, it took 30 minutes to reveal that next bracket. Uh, yeah. It was ridiculous. And so, um, and then, you know, I think their plan was to have it take 30 minutes to reveal the third bracket and then 30 minutes to reveal the, th- the fourth. In between the second and third brackets coming out, um, Blaska says, so this person just put something online that says they've got the leaked bracket. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, it's lining up with everything so far. Do you want to hear mm-hmm. Um, you know, where Indiana's playing. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really care. And he's right. like, you know, he's like, they're a five seed. And they're, you want know, to guess who they're against? I'm like, who is it? Kentucky. And I just laughed because I kind of thought that that would happen anyway. Um, yeah. and it was great because then he was rattling off all the other spots. And then, you know, we come back and they do the third bracket and then they do the fourth bracket very quickly after that. So I think CBS was conscious that, oh crap, cat's out of the bag. We better get this out there before everybody stops watching. But it was, I, I was, we talked about this last week. The thing that offends me the most about CBS's coverage of college basketball is that they put so little effort into the actual college part of the basketball. You know, right. the, the show consisted of, you know, a whole table that was devoted to three guys from the NBA network or from T- TBS, basically, and, and, Seth Davis, who I don't even get me started on Seth Davis. Um, you know, I've never had a show of any sort or any broadcast thing having me wish that Doug Gottlieb would talk more. But, <laughs> but, but this show actually managed to make that happen. Like, he was the only guy who I felt had, like, interesting things to say about the bracket, about the teams, or anything like that. And, you know, it was obvious as they started breaking the bracket down that they'd done almost no research on any of the teams. They, there was no segment on, okay, let's look at the, 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 the computer ratings for these teams and who they played, who are their common opponents, like what have they done. Like it was just it was just Kenny and Charles doing the Kenny and Charles thing, and we didn't need that with this. Right. Like this is the most important day I would argue, of the entire season of college basketball. And CBS, frankly, treats it like it's the first day of a three-month clock or four-month clock until the NBA draft. And that's the last thing that the sport needs. Right. So, you know, there, yeah. There, 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 like you said, I think there's, a, there's a, a case to be made. You can make for a two-hour show, but you have to unveil the brackets in the first half hour. That's why anybody is watching. And yes, I know they were trying to stretch it out so suckers like us would watch, you know, suckers like me, what waiting for my team to make the tournament would be glued to our TV and watch their advertising for two hours. But it just shows, you know, it's kind of a, you know, almost a classic traditional old school media approach to it where, um, you know, there's not at all thinking of viewer experience and not at all viewer thinking of kind of what fans are looking for or what fans want. And it's just such, it was such a middle finger to college basketball fans. I think the way that whole show was set up, I was, you know, you know, putting aside frustration at what the bracket actually said, I was delighted that it leaked. I thought that was wonderful. It was great. You know, CBS had that coming and, you know, I know I feel bad for, um, I guess I, in a way, you know, he's my coach, my team's coach. So I feel bad for like coaches who, uh, you know, the, it started leaked out. So players were, were, and coaches were kind of finding out, you know, unofficially and like, Hey, there's, you know, you're not in on this bracket that might be real or might be not and da da da. But CBS completely set the stage for that. After the, they took so long to do the first bracket and did the whole thing with two Bill Self interviews and Charles Barkley trying to do the thing. 
you knew somebody was going to leak that. It was only a matter of time before somebody decided, before a PA at CBS or somebody at the NCAA gave it to somebody on Twitter and said, go. And I, I, and I'm fascinated to see who it is, where that leak came from. Well, are you, will, are you, are you willing to give them a job when they're fired immediately? Is there- <laughs> I mean, they're they're like, they're like public enemy number one in the sports world among like the corporate people right now. They've, they've finally surpassed the poor Houston Rockets social media guy. (laughs) Oh, if I had hiring capabilities, I would definitely hire them. I'd hire them in a second. No, you're right. I mean, it was, it was, it was the abs, it was absolutely the pin that was needed to suck the air out of the balloon of, of, you know, largesse that CBS had inflated for themselves with this thing. I hope they yep. learn their lesson. I hope they bring it back to an hour. Or yeah. or I hope they learn the the right lesson and they they bring people on who know college basketball, who want to talk about college basketball and mm-hmm. who can give it the analysis that it frankly right. deserves. Like that's yeah, I don't Yeah, I don't understand like I understand they have to deal with Turner, so you know that's where uh Kenny and Charles and, and them come in. But you don't need to have them for ratings. It's the NCAA tournament. It always does well. I don't. Nobody tunes in for the studio people. So you can have college basketball people involved with it, and not you. You're not going to. People aren't going to not tune in because all of a sudden, you know, Barkley and Kenny Smith and and, and Kenny aren't there. Yeah. One thing uh, we did have a question from a a listener. No kidding. That had uh, that that was related to college basketball, but wasn't necessarily related to the show. Okay. Uh, but it's an interesting question, and it's one that you, as a reporter who covered college basketball, I think are, are uniquely suited to address, and, and I'd obviously like to address it as well. We're hearing a lot about Louisville um, here over the course of the last week or two, with the, of course, the the scandal, the you know, with the prostitution allegedly, and the coaches paying for it. Um, yet during the tournament, would you would think that North Carolina is the collegiate poster child? So why aren't Right. more making noise about the immense cloud that UNC is under right now going into the NCAA tournament? Yeah, that's a really, really good good question. Um, I think, let's see. Now, we'll, we'll take it as read that it should be at least mentioned. You should, we should, it should be out there. It should be part of the discussion. I think, you know, personally, you know, as someone who's, you know, and, and, and doing what we do professionally – I'm more, much more offended by the, you know, I'm offended by the Louisville scandal because that's gross. But more than almost any other, aside from Sandusky, this is one of the worst scandals because this gets at the heart of what we do, you know, professionally, you know, education. And, you know, we're an institute of higher higher education. And Carolina was just straight academic fraud in the absolute worst kind of way. I would, I would rather Johnny, Johnny Manziel make hundreds of, thousands of dollars selling his autograph to every co-ed in Lubbock than they have what happened in in w- w- with North Carolina. Um, so why do I think it's Louisville's being mentioned a lot more than Carolina? Well, one, Louisville's not in the tournament, so it's an easy kind of easy kind of thing. They're not here. Here's why. Two, sex scales. Sex, sex sells. Easy for me to say. It also scales. It also scales. Um, <laughs> there's our title. Um, so we have so so you know it, it's a much more lurid kind of dead spinny TMZ type scandal than fake classes uh, at, at, at UNC. And I think part of it too, I get the feeling I get, and, and I could be wrong on this, but I feel like a lot of college sports fans and the general public probably feels like what happened at North Carolina happens everywhere. 
And so I, I, I like the, the, the fake classes, the, 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 the kind of great inflation for athletes. I feel like, um, I feel like people don't care about academics with college athletics. I feel like they, people really feel like, you know, they're, they're there to play basketball and it doesn't matter if they go, who cares if they go to class? They're there to play basketball, you know, kind of the Ben Simmons model of it. Um, and so, so I think that's partially why the public isn't, doesn't really, it hasn't latched on with the public and two, you know, there's some isolated, uh, some other kind of specific factors to the story. There's, it's so big and so wide ranging. There's not like that focal point person or that focal point well, thing that you can point to on it. But I think that, you know, it should be talked about, but I think that I, I, my sense is that I don't know if audience members really care so much. And so I think that disincentivizes journalists from kind of dwelling on that story a bit. I don't know. I don't know that audience members have really expressed a tremendous amount of caring about the Louisville scandal. I mean, nobody was asking for that outside the lines piece that aired this weekend about Louisville. I mean, Louisville's out of the tournament. They're really kind of out of people's mindset right now. Whereas North Carolina was vying for a one seed. And not only have we not heard about the North Carolina academic scandal all year, really, we haven't heard about it. We certainly haven't heard about it in the lead up to the tournament. Sure. Um, you know, and I, it's just I don't know when I see the the things that are published, the investigative stuff that's out there. It does make me wonder, like, what? Why aren't we seeing more focus from the 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 hardcore? News reporters at ESPN at Sports Illustrated when it comes to UNC. I, my, 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 it's not even a theory. It's more of a hypothesis is that okay. there's always been, and you know this as someone who was a fan of UNC before, there's always been a, an aura of like a protective aura around UNC. Oh, they, they've always absolutely. been treated like they're the ones that do it right when everybody else does it wrong, which is part of, part of what makes this particular scandal, I think, so egregious and so insulting. Um, but, you know, I, I remember anecdotally, um, you can choose to believe this or not. I just think it's an interesting anecdote. I, I had a friend who interned at CNNSI back when CNNSI was a thing, back in like two, <laughs> 2000, 2001. And this was, he, was, he interned there in the, in the spring of 2000. And I remember him coming back from that and telling me that he worked with all of these people in the news division, the sports division, um, of CNNSI. And they were all UNC grads. And they, they made a point of saying, we're going to take down Bob Knight so that he doesn't break Dean Smith's record. Really, and you know that's always stuck with me because mm-hmm. it makes me think. Okay, who's who? Are, where's the decision making process coming from in a lot of the editorial uh, rooms of of sports within within the major institutions? I mean, do you have that sort of influence where it's like, well, we don't have all the facts with UNC, so we really need to like wait until the NCAA covers it. Whereas with Louisville, where you know there, there's been the same amount of NCAA public statement is anything it's like you know let's go let's go find the, the assistant coach who's like driving an uber in kansas city and and let's go talk with these recruits and it's like let's do all of this legwork and you've seen frankly you've seen none of that legwork on the unc case outside of like one reporter in raleigh who 
I mean, God bless him. He's he. I, I don't know how he even you know still lives in the area, given the response that he's had to the the mm-hmm. stories that he's put out. So I do wonder if there's some degree of protection being given to that particular program. Certainly, that's possible. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that that's you know completely out of the realm of possibility. I wonder in general how much we you know how much investigation investigative reporting into college sports still matters. And I say this, um, I, I, I saw that look you just gave me. Um, I, I, I say that interestingly because of, and the, 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 tradi- trying to frame my thoughts here. Traditionally, when we've looked at the, the reporting into scandals in college sports, it's been into kind of paying of players, booster payments, illegal, you know, impermissible extra benefits. You know, the raw recruits, the Emory, the Emory folder. Yeah. I know. I've, I've read all, I've read all the books. Of course you have. Of course you have. I have too. And, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of the standard. And, you know, I think about, and I, I feel like there's been such a culture shift in sports, or at least enough of a culture shift where people, you know, maybe our age, maybe dead spin readers, you know, maybe we're a self-selecting sample, but there's kind of a better, better, you know, more, relaxed attitude, I guess, toward, you know, understanding that players should probably be getting some level of compensation beyond what, beyond their scholarship. And that this, you know, the, the, the general economy of college sports is kind of effed up. And so I feel like that, you know, I, I, I flash back to the, the big Oklahoma State series, the big five part series on Oklahoma State that SI did a couple summers ago, where I was like supposed to be all these bombshells about, you know, a rogue program and all the stuff they do. And it was, you know, all this, it was, um, I think it was Pete, it was, it was Thayer Evans, I think Pete Thamel had a, had a role in it, um, a couple, a big, right. like, big shots. It was a, it was a, and it just landed with a collective blah. Well, but, but, but that wasn't a very good piece. I mean, well, no, and, but uh, I mean, I mean, well, I guess my point is UNC, there's a, there's an article on Deadspin that's dated June 4th, 2015, which is headline, NCAA alleges lack of institutional control at UNC. That we knew going into the season that UNC had basically delayed the process enough that there wasn't going to be a hearing on the case until after the NCAA tournament, and it was nakedly obvious to most observers that they were purposely trying to delay this as far enough into the future as they could so that they could play the entire season without having to go before the committee on on infractions. Like, th- these are the sorts of things that, frankly, you would expect there to be at least a mention of, and there haven't been. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there definitely should be. I mean, there should definitely probably, you know, it is weird how some programs, you know, like UNC being kind of the prime example right now of being, you know, bulletproof kind of or you know like they say like they they lawyer up and, and delay it just enough that you know we're you know it's under committee so we can't you know and, and you know kind of getting into my access and sources research you know it gets into the fact we can't comment on it because it's still under investigation and, and we're, we're going to the committee on infractions and yes it's all it's all it's all bs it's like we can't comment on the lawsuit while it's pending blah 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 right. it's it's nonsense but now all of a sudden you know, what's new to report, what's there to, you know, I'm, these are not justification. I'm not justifying it. I'm, you know, kind of trying to think as a reporter would. And yeah, it's, it is kind of amazing that the UNC scandal, which is really a bombshell has just kind of, it's just, and maybe part of it too, is that without a, the hearing and without the actual infractions right now, you don't kind of, it lacks, a, I don't know, I'm stretching to try to figure out why, but you don't have that, like, UNC, 
barred from postseason for three I mean, years on widespread academic fraud case. I, I guess like you're, you're, it, like you have at Louisville or you had at Syracuse or you had wherever. I think I think you know Big Blue Nation is the most paranoid people on the internet, and that's saying something. Like there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of right. paranoid people on the internet, but but I, I think they're exactly right. Imagine if it was Kentucky that was under <laughs> these allegations as opposed to UNC. I mean would. Right. You know, the the questioning for John Calipari certainly wouldn't have been, do you feel you were seated incorrectly? It would have been, right. do you feel like you should even be in this tournament right now, given the allegations right. that are hovering over your program? You know, that's, uh, you know, that's that's the sort of thing that I, you know, I'm really turned off by, you know, and 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 for Roy Williams to go and complain about feeling persecuted. Uh, in the post game press conference, you know, after they they won the ACC tournament, it's like, you know, I don't know. I just to me, it's just a fascinating uh lack of media focus on something that's that should be very simple and very like just wrote like, okay, we need to talk about this because it's happening yeah. and yet it's not being talked about. And and I'm I'm really, you know, I know, look, I'm not going back to what I was saying before. Do I think people are burying the story? I don't know. I mean, but I I, I also don't think that I, I'm like you. I am really struggling to find a news reason why this isn't being discussed. Right. Um. In just in, simply in light of here's North Carolina. They're one of they're maybe the third favorite to win the national title past Kansas and Michigan State. And, oh, by the way, their entire program is basically, um, you know, being alleged to have faked their way through about a decade of, of college basketball. Like, that seems like a major story. Yeah, absolutely. It should be a bigger story. And, you know, maybe academic fraud doesn't get people, you know, media and mm. and, and people excited. So anyway. so speaking of academics, in the, in the little time we have left here, yes. you were, you were we, I wanted to kind of talk about the idea of, you know, uh, of, uh, academic conferences. You were at one this, this weekend. It's, yeah. uh, one that's very near and dear to, I think, both of our hearts personally and professionally. It's the reason we have this podcast is because of the, uh, IAC summit is where we met in lovely Peoria, Illinois. And was that 2012? Was that in Peoria? Was that 2012? It was 2011, I think. 2000, 11. I'm pretty sure 2012 was Austin, wasn't it? I think, I thought, I think, guys, I thought it went Peoria. 12. No, you're right. Uh, Peoria was 12, Austin was 13, Manhattan was 14, Charlotte was 15, so. There you, there you go. So, um, so again, you know, in, in, in kind of brief detail for our non-academic audience, you know, let's, you know, what, when we talk about an academic conference, like, what are we doing there? Like, what's kind of, well, you know, the, the stated point of it and, and, you know, what are the, you know, what do we like about them? Maybe I don't know. Just as, as a potentially interesting thing to, thing to talk about, as something that we both live with in our, well, in our lives. Yeah, I mean, so the idea behind an academic conference. I'm sure people have heard about these, and they're like, "What? What the hell is an academic conference?" I mean, right. the academic conference is a place for you to present work. Sometimes it's work in progress, which is actually what our study was that we presented on. Sometimes it's completed work, uh, but it's the it's the idea that you're able to appear before your peers and talk about research and talk with them about research and, and allow them to question, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it and allow you to have the opportunity to do the same. Um, so that's kind of the stated purpose. It's also a way for, like, people in the field to interact with each other on a yearly basis because, you know, I mean, 
when when academic conferences started, I think it was perhaps more important than it is now in the internet era when we can all email each other or talk to each other on social media. But um, what I really love about academic conferences is that I get to go hear a bunch of different ideas from people that I've read mm-hmm. and maybe haven't had a chance to talk to in person. Um, and, you know, I always, I, you know, research is tough. Like for those people who don't do academic research, research can be draining after a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I always leave these conferences <laughs> invigorated with, with the, the desire to do research. I come out, I come back with a host of new ideas. I'm able to talk with colleagues about, you know, potentially getting together and doing a study. Uh, it's why I go. I mean, I, I, you know, I enjoy hearing the presentations of stuff that's already there. It gives me new ideas, but, but I really go because of the things that it does for me in terms of spurring me on to doing further research and for the social aspects of yeah. seeing people that I consider to be friends. Uh, you know, in in a profession where I don't have a lot of time to go do that generally. Right. Yeah, it, it, I, I do find it. Kind of, I always find it kind of interesting. And you know, look to be very and to be honest, conferences. You're expected to go as a professor. You're expected yes. to be to go to conferences. It's part of how you get tenure. It's kind of how you get promoted. Is to be to be part of the it be on the conference circuit. You know, my travel. You know, I found my travel to them has dwindled. It was very high in the. Uh, when I was a master's student and a PhD student, when you're trying to kind of get into a doc program and get a job um, and tailed off for you know numerous reasons, you know, teaching, family stuff and all that. Um, but I, I, I always do find it odd that, you know, presenting research at conferences is so often and, you know, I don't know if this is a flaw in the conference setup or just kind of the way it's developed. But I find it interesting how it's often either like ours work in progress or, you know, not quite publishable or not publishable yet. Um, and again, for those of you who aren't academic people, when you, when you, when we say publish, we're publishing in what's called a peer review journal. And it's, it's a long process because you, you do your study, you do your research, you submit it. It's read by reviewers who approve it or, or, or suggest edits or whatever. And then it's published. You know, I've had studies published, you know, years after the research is done and, and years after submitted. I know you have, too. Um, and, and so it is a little faster, you know. So I, I do kind of find it odd that's kind of like a middle ground of a lot of research. Um, but like you, you know, it's very invigorating. It's very funny. You know, this the uh, the the IACS summit, the sport communication and sports summit. Um, I mean, it really, for me, became, you know, a home for, for in a lot of ways, a professional home. I, I, I tell the story a lot. When I was a master's student at Syracuse, um, the summer before I started the PhD program, uh, the AEJMC, which is the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communication, one of the major uh, 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 conferences in our field, uh, I was in Chicago, and I had a poster presentation based on my master's research. Um, and at poster research, you put your poster up, people walk by, and you get to talk to them about your research. And it's actually quite fun. I actually enjoy that a lot. Um, and one person just came up to me and we were talking and he asked me what I was going to do my research on in the, in the doctoral program. And I told him I wanted to take this kind of media sociology research I did and kind of focus it on journalist routines and sports journalism. And he looked at me like I was the biggest moron who'd ever lived and basically said, why on earth would you want to waste your time studying sports? You want to study the newsroom. You know, that's the heart of uh, that. You know, the news desk is the heart of a newspaper. Why are you wasting your time covering sports? And then so to go to a conference that's all sports media, sports journalism, sports marketing, you know, you know, you know, everyone, you know, everyone kind of speaks the language and, you know, everyone, you know, 
is watching college basketball on the weekends, not just because it's on at the bar, but, you know, we're seeking out the games to go see or the hockey games to go see. It is, it, it really, it was kind of like, I remember that first conference feeling like, man, I met my people here. Like it, it, it really kind of felt good to have that, you know, that, you know, I'm studying sports journalism and not have the, well, why would you do that? But of course you're studying sports journalism. That's great. So, um, yeah, I haven't been able to get to the last two conferences, as you well know, last year because of horrific weather, this year because of scheduling conflicts and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I do like, you know, I think that what you were saying, the social aspect of the conference is really important too. you know, the 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 kind of socializing afterward and out, and out, and out of the, the outside of the formal conference can be as important for people, too, as well. Yeah, I, you know, and I think you're right. It's it's a it's a cool home um, in terms of you know, finding people who have a like-minded interest. Like I've always, you know, I came from a different route. Now you came from the communication side of things. I came from the, the sport management side of things. I mean, I'm a communication scholar, but, uh, you know, so liking sport was never the issue for me. It was more, Oh, uh, I like to study communication. I like to study those processes, both in terms of audience and in terms of, of the producers of sport related communication. And so, uh, I think it's been great because to to fall in with a bunch of people who have been, you know, who are studying those same things is really important to me, particularly in the social media realm where you don't see a whole lot of that. So, yeah, socially, you know, look, I mean, people have interesting ideas about academia. Most of their ideas about academia, I think, are um, colored by the professors that they might have had as uh, you know, undergraduates themselves, and sometimes those people are not particularly well, so you know, socially well-adjusted people. Um, and I mean, you know, I can I can verify that that does that is the case oftentimes in 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 this business. But you know, I look, being a professor is is not tremendously different from being in any other profession. You you find people that you like that share similar interests, and the fact that you get to go somewhere, talk about ideas. And be, you know, be friendly afterwards, I think is a really great benefit. It's something that I think a lot of people enjoy in their own, uh, professions, whether that happens to be, you know, in business or in, in some other area. Like, well, there's normally things like this that happen. It's just with academic conferences, they get this kind of weird aura about them because of the weird aura that surrounds academia in general. <laughs> right. Is there anything you would general change about the, the kind of conference, academic conference culture? Well, I think it gets very cliquish. Um, academia is very much like high school. Uh, it's, it's, it's very much like, who do I know? Who went to the same school as me? Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's, there's some mean girlness that goes on with, uh, with some of the presentations and things like that. Like what, what I really enjoy is sitting around and talking with other scholars <laughs> in, in a kind of a semi-structured environment about, what we think is interesting and important without worrying about somebody coming in and shouting us down about, Oh, this is unimportant. Why are you wasting your time on this? Like there, there, there's so much good stuff out there that, you know, there's so many good research ideas that I've had that frankly have been spurred on by conversations that, you know, I, if I hadn't been at a conference talking with people, I probably wouldn't have had, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- those sorts of things I really value. And I'd like to see more of that, I, I, you know, I don't think you'll ever get rid of clickishness because I think clickishness is just part of human nature. But, but I would like to be able to break 
down barriers a little bit and just get a chance to talk with people as human beings. And, yeah. you know, I, I think, you know, for me, it's not a problem because I'm, I'm like, I'm somewhat gregarious, I guess I would say, and I'm, I'm pretty outgoing and I'm not really afraid to talk to anybody, but I know a lot of people that are. And, right. and, you know, in, in this profession, as with any pr- profession, there's people that you'll run into who, you know, they have a great reputation. They're like giants in the field. And you're like, I, I, I'm afraid of this person. I'm afraid of, you know, they're not going to know who I am or not going to care what I think. And generally that's not the case, but that will keep you from going and talking to the person. Right. And I'd like to find a way uh, to change that a little bit, but I don't know how. Yeah. You know, I, I do like the, that, the idea of informal, I- informal is here. Like I, I do feel like a lot of times the best ideas that come in a conference are the best kind of things that come from the conference rarely, you know, I don't know how to say rarely, but more often than not, don't come from the, the formal panels or the formal kind of research presentations that they, that, that, that I see or the papers that I read. Um, and that's no value judgment on the work being none. It's all wonderful. But what sticks with you is kind of like that, that you're saying that social aspect, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, you know, almost, you know, inform, you know, I, I'd love to see, you know, if I had to change it, I don't know, maybe less emphasis on, on on finished research and more emphasis on research in progress on research ideas on um you know roundtable discussions i don't know just kind of you know i i i i i don't i i don't know i feel like there that a lot of times there's a let me get this let me get this paper done and accepted to a conference so that i can then send it to a publication and then it's a line on the cv and then i can do my presentation and and you right. know and, and and that's it and you know i i i think that's you know, and that and that's very tempting, and that might be you know a, a a broader symptom of the you know publisher parish world of academia, um, especially kind of at like at your school, at a school like yours, or more of an R one type school. Right. Um. But you know, I I I I do like the idea of, um, you know, uh, of that of the informal discussion. Like, you know, wouldn't it be a, what 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 a great panel would be at a conference to be like. Open roundtable. Let's talk about what. Let's talk about you know, open open floor. Let's talk about what interests us, and you know, just kind of start. It's you know, tough. spitballing. I mean, it, 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 I don't know how you do. Like again, this is all you know, pie in the sky. I don't know how you'd actually do it. But you know, I, I, I as I think about conferences I've been to and about you know, you know, and, and the investment to go to conferences is so much. You know, in terms of you know, it's you know, it's expensive, it's, people. It's, it's, very, it's very expensive because you got airfare, you got yeah, hotel, you got meals plus conference registration is usually a couple hundred dollars. Um, so you're looking usually at conferences at least probably a thousand bucks easy. Yep. Um, and, 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 you know, how to make that, you know, and a lot of times, you know, our trout, you know, when you're a professor, you get a certain amount of money that you can travel with, but that's limited. It's not like an unlimited pot. And so how do we make that, make a conference worth going to so that like I, I'm spending a thousand bucks in my department of my own money that's eventually getting to get back to me from my department. How am I, how am I justifying this beyond, Hey, it's a line on the, uh, on my resume that can help me out. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, conferences certainly, I wouldn't go so far as to say like the conference structure is broken, but I, I, I always do feel like it can be kind of improved upon. So it's less, um, well, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, know. I think a lot of the organizations, um, tend to they get to a point where they the registration is just absurd and and they end up in places that are hard to get to and 
that does probably need to change, but it's tough because, you know, I mean, the, you know, the leading conference in a field is always going to be seen as something that needs to have, you know, a certain price because it's got a certain degree of prestige attached sure. to it. Uh, so I don't know what the answer to that one is, but, uh, you know, we'll think about it and we'll talk about it next time. We'll, we'll solve it. We'll solve it before long. So yeah. no worries on that. So. Anyway. Well, uh, good chat as always and I hope yep. you folks enjoyed listening and. We'll look forward to chatting with you hopefully, hopefully next week, and um, we'll, as we say, catch you on the flip side. Brian, thanks a bunch. Thank you. Right. See you guys later. We'll see you guys later.